Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you for reading that. Uh, one reason that we read uh, scripture in various languages is to celebrate uh, the diversity of the kingdom uh, and also to celebrate the diversity of our congregation. So we, we have this vision to be a multicultural church because uh, we believe that it images the kingdom of God. And so uh, we want to celebrate that through the reading of various languages. So thank you, uh, Ms., for doing that. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I'm so glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, this is your first time. We just are so thankful that you would choose to join us this Sunday morning. Uh, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You can fill out a connection card. There may be a QR code on the screen. If not, you can go to coahforesthills.com org slash connect. And for doing so, we give you a free gift uh, of a, a coffee gift card, Nebraska, right around the corner, as well as a free book. And I uh, would love to just get to know you and help connect you to what's going on here at City on a Hill. Um, our vision as a church is to see every person from every culture experience the gospel. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, this means that we, as we do so, we experience the gospel through coming to trusting faith in Jesus Christ, personally laying our lives down, submitting to him. We're going to talk a lot about that today, but also that the gospel shapes how we live. And so and even in our values, our three values, the gospel is one of those values that, um, that we, our lives are shaped by what Christ has done for us, by dying for us on the cross, and that anyone who trusts in him can be saved. Um, our next uh, value is community. Community is the truth that God has brought together people from all sorts of backgrounds, ethnicities, personalities, um, you know, sins that we struggle with and has brought us together into a new family. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently that in the church, if we start with friendship, we rarely get to community, rarely get to the digging into people's lives who are different than us. But if we start with community, the idea that God has called us together under this common confession that Jesus is Lord, we usually end up getting friendship. And we end up with the best friends we could possibly imagine. And the mission that the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. We live to tell other people about Jesus and love to reach out into our community because of how Jesus has served us. And we were actually able to do that this week. Um, this week, we've been praying for a relationship with the Boston Housing Authority for two years, even before we began to, begin, began to meet. And just in the last week and a half, God blew the doors open. And so we had some volunteer teams uh, serving over there uh, this past week. And God just really opened a door, gave us a person a piece there. Um, we're hoping to do some stuff over there next month. And hopefully this becomes an ongoing relationship where we can begin to pour into the lives of our friends and neighbors over on South Street. So you guys can be praying about that. Uh, a couple of announcements before we jump into the text today. Uh, the first is our Discover class is coming up this Friday. And so our Discover class is for anyone who's just interested in more, uh, knowing more about City on a Hill. Um, uh, this is the first step in our membership process, but there's no pressure to join through this. Uh, we'll talk about our distinctives. We'll talk about what we believe, our leadership structure, all those fun things, and we'll even feed you dinner. So um, if you'd like to sign up for that, you can go to our event page, coahforestills.org slash events and then uh, you can sign up there. Uh, and then secondly, our, uh, our foster care and adoption seminar was supposed to be this coming Saturday. We're actually gonna postpone that until November. It's summer, schedules are crazy, and we wanna just get a little bit better uh, turnout for that. So be on the lookout for more information as we get into the fall. Now, as we jump into the text today in Acts chapter one, uh, we've been going through a series through the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is really just the bare basics of what Christians believe. Christians have believed these things uh, since the very beginning of 
the church. And so it's called the Apostles' Creed. It's a little bit of a, a kind of a, a misnomer. It was probably written somewhere around the second century, probably wasn't written by the original apostles, but the content of the Apostles' Creed is what the Christian church has believed. And so we're about halfway through our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we've hit some pretty major topics, but now we're starting to get into some that aren't as familiar. Now, if you remember here in Boston, uh, we kicked off kind of the big three era of the NBA. And so in the NBA, prior to that, there was usually one superstar on every team. Well, here in Boston, we, we started, we kicked this off. We had Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen, and they formed the super team and ran over the league. And so all these other teams began to kind of shuffle and try to get as many superstars as they could. And so probably the most famous super team, big three, is down in Miami with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and LeBron James. And if you, if you watch basketball, I use a lot of sports analogies. I apologize. That's just how my brain thinks. And, um, and so if you remember, they said, we're not going to win just one, two, three. They were going to win like 87 titles. They only won two. But people often forget that that second title was not won because LeBron James had some sort of heroic moment. It was won because of Ray Allen. Ray Allen hits this buzzer beater at the end of game six against the Spurs to save them from going out and being eliminated. People forget that there was a fourth player on that team. If you think about Christian holidays, we have a big three. We have Christmas, we have Good Friday, and we have Easter. Those are the three that we celebrate, but we often don't talk about the Ascension. And the ascension is just as important as those big three. And maybe you grew up in a more liturgical background. You grew up Catholic or Episcopalian, maybe Presbyterian, and you did celebrate ascension. You remember Ascension Sunday. It's 40 days after Easter. And as we look at the ascension, there's a lot of stuff that happened between the resurrection and the ascension. In those 40 days, Jesus packed a lot of life in there. Um, he, appeared, as we said last week, appeared to over 500 people. Um, he met with his disciples. He ate with people. He comforted people. But the story doesn't end with the resurrection, and it also doesn't end with the ascension. The ascension tells us a lot about Jesus and his mission and God's intention for us. And we often forget that the climax of a story is not always the end of a story. So if you've ever watched Star Wars, how does Return of the Jedi end? You might be tempted to say, when well, they blew up the Death Star, right? No, after that, they, there's a celebration and Luke buries Darth Vader. If you've not watched this, the movie's like 87 years old. Like that's my number for the day. It's like, it's, a, it's an old movie. You should, should have watched this. But there's a celebration and there's mourning and there's closure as he, his relationship with his dad, he gets some closure there. If you ever read Lord of the Rings, what's the end of Lord of the Rings? Is it when the ring gets dropped in Mordor in the fire? No. There's an entire 150 pages after that where a king is crowned and all evil is coming undone and they're living in light of the climax of that story. The ascension is kind of the same way and it kind of leaves us asking in the Christian life, now what? What do we do? And in verse six, we see the question that the disciples asked Jesus before he ascends into heaven. It's kind of a now what do we do? We see in the ascension that God has an intention for the way that we're called to live, that Jesus in his ascension is a king who is being crowned, a king going to his throne and his whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. But the problem is that we see Jesus leaving earth. If Jesus is taking the throne, how is his ascension actually about him bringing shalom, bringing peace, making the world the way it's supposed to be? It tells us a lot about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing through us. So let's take a deeper look at the ascension this morning. 
First thing we want to look at is what is the ascension? The ascension is this picture of Jesus ascending into heaven. If you look at the very beginning of Acts chapter one, we see that Luke has written this letter to a man named Theophilus. And, and, and Theophilus is receiving this letter as kind of part two of a two-part series. If you look at the gospel of Luke, it says uh, to his friend uh, Theophilus, and, and then here at the beginning of Acts chapter one, he does the same. In Luke, he says that he wanted to give Theophilus an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And here at the beginning of Acts chapter one, he says that he wants to tell him of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so we notice that Jesus leaves the scene very quickly. It says all that he began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And we see that there's a shift here from Jesus to the apostles. In fact, if you look at the top of your Bible, you might see the Acts of the Apostles. The ascension marks a change in how God is going to work in the world. And we see this throughout the Bible, that God has ch had changed some of the ways that he, he would engage his people. In the Old Testament, God would be met at the tabernacle or he'd be met in the temple as the high priest would come to him and the high priest would mediate for the people. When Jesus came into the world, God incarnate, we see a difference in the way that God uh, in, engaged with his people because God had now become flesh. But in the New Testament, we see that God works through his people because what does 1 Corinthians 6 say about us? That we are now the temple of the what? The Holy Spirit. That God is doing something in us by us receiving the Spirit to empower us to go on God's mission. And that could only happen if Jesus ascended into heaven. We're going to get more into the Spirit next week. And so verse 6, they're saying their goodbyes to Jesus. He's about to leave. There, there are these final words, and they, they have these burning questions. You know, if you're going to spend just a couple of minutes with somebody and you just want to ask them that last question. Look, I, I love icebreaker questions. I love writing them for community groups. I, I'm, I kind of have like a sick pleasure in these. And I love icebreaker questions because it's, they tell you a lot about people. And so one of my favorite questions would be like, if you were in the middle of the zombie apocalypse, what would be your weapon? Because I want to know if I want to hang out with you or not. Like if you're choosing like a broomstick, I'm not, we're not in the same squad. But one of my favorite questions though is, if you could spend five minutes with any person dead or alive and ask them one question, what would it be? I think that tells you a lot about that person. The disciples have five minutes left with Jesus. They've been with him for three years and there's this burning question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, th this tells us a few things. Firstly, it tells us what they wanted most. What, what you ask in that moment is, reveals what you want most and they wanted the restoration of national Israel. They wanted to see the kingdom restored to them. They wanted to see after hundreds of years of being under the oppression of their enemies, they wanted to be set free. But it also kind of reveals that they still don't get it. Jesus has gone over this with them again and again and again. But we really need to be easy on the disciples. I know I said last week that the story writes them like they're morons, and it does. But this actually shows God's patience with us that we mess up again and again and again, and God is still gracious to use us. The same people who don't get it in verse seven, God sends in verse eight. So we need to be patient with them and, and be reminded that God is patient with us. And we see this, this phrase in the middle of that question that really reveals something about their hearts. It says, at this time. That sounds a lot like the, the psalmist cry of how long, O Lord? 
We've been waiting for this for such a long time. This wasn't just about receiving political power. This was about being free from the oppression of army after army and nation after nation. They really wanted a good thing. And I think that's what Jesus didn't say. Seriously, guys, he kind of deflects the focus. He deflects the focus from when to who, from when to who. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Why? Because the Father has fixed the time. What this means is that we have a Father that we can trust with the timing of things that happen in our lives. We have a God who is never late. I'm going to use my second Lord of the Rings illustration to make Matt happy this morning. If you ever watched or read Lord of the Rings, there's a scene between Frodo and Gandalf. Gandalf shows up to Bilbo, uh, Frodo's uncle's birthday party, and, uh, and Bilbo accuses him, or Frodo accuses him of being late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, Master Baggins, not, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. In the same way, God arrives precisely when he means to. And we have the same struggle and the same problem with lives, in our lives because we often call out to God and go, where are you? Why not now? Why not yet? Why am I still struggling? But we have a God who is never early nor never late. We often wonder and worry about our jobs and what we're going to do and in, in our families. And we have these worries and anxieties and they paralyze us from being faithful in the moment because we're so worried about what's going to happen in the future. But if we have a God who fixes all time and seasons by his own authority, we don't have to be paralyzed by the future possibilities. We can be present with him and present with others. I hear this all the time in Boston. It's like, you know, I'm not going to be here too long. I don't want to get too involved with the church. I don't want to dig too deep into relationships with people because, you know, I'm just going to move in a year or move in two years. I'm, I might be changing jobs, might be doing this. That's us worrying about what's coming down the road instead of being faithful and present with the Lord. Faithful, present faithfulness always leads to future faithfulness. But I think there's a second reason why Jesus told them not to fixate on when. It's because of what the ascension means. What it means about Jesus, that he is a king taking his throne, the rightful ruler over all things. And for him to take his throne, which is the heavens, it is in heaven, means that he is over and above all things, that the entire earth is his. And so this is the picture of a coronation. When you go to think about a coronation, the closest thing we have in America is, you know, is the election of a president and inauguration day. But imagine, you know, that there's a new king of England who's being crowned. He doesn't magically become the king because they put a crown on his head. This is a symbol of the power that he has already received. And Jesus is a king like he is all three branches of the government. He's executive. He can tell us what to do. He's legislative. He's the lawgiver. He is the judge who will bring judgment. But we can trust him with timing and we can trust him with when and where and how because he is a good and gentle king who's going to bring all things together, who's going to make all things right exactly when they're supposed to be. And I know for many of us, we ask the question, why won't Jesus just come back already? And the answer is, is, I don't know, but he does. And when we think about Romans 8, 28, it's not just a platitude to make us feel better, but if Jesus is king, we can really trust that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
We can trust our God. So what did the ascension itself look like? If you were there watching this scene, what would it look like? Well, verse nine tells us, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He was lifted up. Now we can get a little weird and twisted on some of these details, especially when we think about where heaven might be located, um, how all this kind of works together. But really we need to focus on what happened and where did Jesus go? So what happened and where did Jesus go? Well, what happened simply is that we need to understand what Jesus first came to do. Jesus, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is God who became flesh. He is fully God and fully man. He is a fully human nature. He had a real body and he lived in history. He lived somewhere around the beginning of the first century, around 33 years on earth. And it is vital for us to understand that he lived a fully human life in a fully human body. He did a lot of stuff in his life. He experienced everything that we experienced. I'm sure he did laundry and he cooked and he washed dishes and he laughed and told jokes and he cried. He did all of the things that you and I do. But in his resurrection, there was something different about his physical body. And he, it was a truly physical body, but it was a type of body that could walk through a wall, but could also sit down and eat fish. It was the type of body that you could look at and see that the wounds were real, but that somehow the wounds were healed. He had a different body as the first fruit of the new creation as a promise to us that we would never have to experience death again because of what Jesus did. And then we see in the ascension that really the simplest way to put it is that he vanished. In his human body, fully God, fully man, he, he disappears. He simply left time and space out of their sight. In verse 10, we see that they are heartbroken. They're left gazing into the heavens because their friend and their mentor and their leader is gone. They're an absolute mess before him. They're thinking we're going to be an absolute mess without him. But if you look back into the gospel story, what did Jesus say about when he would leave? He said, it'll actually be better for you when I leave. That sounds crazy, right? Because I think we often think, you know, if I just had Jesus sitting in the passenger seat, I wouldn't yell at that guy who doesn't know how to use a roundabout. Like, I, I really think we think that. If I just had Jesus sitting beside me, I wouldn't fall into that temptation again. We often think that it's better if Jesus is beside us physically but he told the disciples it would be better. He told Mary Magdalene in John 20, who Jesus had radically changed her life. He told her, don't cling to me because I must ascend to the Father. It's gonna be better because where I'm going, I will be able to be with you all the time. Tim Keller says, not only does the ascension actually do the opposite of what the apostles thought, the ascension is not the absence of Christ, it is the increased and heightened presence of Christ. And this tells us about where Jesus went. Jesus went to heaven. Now, when I say heaven, I don't mean the sky. It's not like we have the hell below earth and then the sky, and then heavens in the sky. We don't need to think of it like that, but J.I. Packer says that heaven is shared life with God. It's shorthand for the Christian's final hope. It is eternity with him outside time and space. It means he is with God the Father. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 14? That I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. 
St. Augustine said, you, Jesus, ascended from before our eyes and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. But he's with us all the time. You may have heard the story of the cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, um, who was a, was a Soviet uh, astronaut, went into space, and it, there was a line that was attributed to him that as he was floating above the earth, the first person to ever go into space, supposedly he said the words, I see no God, or something along those lines. But actually what's interesting is that was not true. That was Soviet propaganda. That was Khrushchev who said that, not Yuri Gagarin. In fact, people who knew Yuri Gagarin actually said that he was an ardent follower of Jesus, a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. He had a very faithful following in his, his, his pursuit of Jesus. And apparently he told a, a Russian uh, journalist this. He says, an astronaut cannot be suspended in space and not have God in his mind and in his heart. It's not about God floating above the earth and the heavens, but it's a God who came down to us and promised that he would be with us in our hearts and that we would one day be with him forever. So Jesus is in heaven. He's preparing a place for us and he's drawing us to his hearts. And so we need to understand what Jesus is doing right now. So what Jesus is doing now. Well, to get what he's doing, we have to look a little bit at the Apostles' Creed and jump around a little bit more. The next line in the Apostles' Creed says that he's seated at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand is the picture of power. It's the highest honor that you could have in the ancient world. And it's not the way that we think of kind of a right-hand man. When we think of a right-hand man, we think of kind of second in charge. We think of someone who is not quite as high as the leader, but someone who is second. But in this context, it means someone of equal status. For Jesus to elevate to the space of being at the right hand of God, the Father, means that he is co-equal with God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe as God and he sits at the right hand. That means that Jesus as God rules over all things. And so it's important for us to understand what Jesus is doing as the one who sits at the right hand of God. And Romans 8 tells us this. I'm only going to read part of this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is mind-blowing. I don't know if you ever watched the Super Bowl, and they always used to ask this question, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to go do? Nobody said, I'm going to go serve in a soup kitchen for the next year. That's exactly what Jesus just said. What Paul has said that Jesus would do. That he didn't just sit back and enjoy his work and say, okay, now it's time for you guys to get it together. He is constantly interceding and applying the work of the cross to us. The intercession on one hand is that Jesus is our advocate. An advocate is a person who steps in as a third party for someone else. This is kind of like a parent going into a parent-teacher conference for their child before a teacher. Or a lawyer who stands before the judge on behalf of a client. Jesus advocates for us. 
And so why does he do this? We think about, we talk about how the work of Christ is finished and the work of the cross is finished. But when Jesus intercedes and advocates for us, he takes the finished work of the cross and he applies it to our accounts. It's like he's hitting the refresh button on grace every time. And it means that when you actually sin, a particular sin, you're actually forgiven of that particular sin. That when Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sins, he didn't just do it in some sort of abstract way or as just a big blanket. It means that every particular sin that you have ever committed, Jesus took upon himself and his blood paid for. It means when we sin, we have one who intercedes. When we sin, we have an advocate, as 1 John 2 tells us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, you think about how many times you sin, and if you're honest, and I'm going to be honest, I sin a lot because I'm human and I'm broken and I'm fallen. And I would imagine if I were God, it would get kind of old. I look at my life and think, man, like, I'm not forgiving that guy again. We imagine God's forgiveness like a credit card limit. Okay, like we reach up to the limit and all of a sudden that card gets declined. And so what do you have to do to get a little more, you know, a little more balance on your credit card? I feel like you've got to pay that off, Right. That's exactly how we treat the forgiveness of Jesus. What we do is we think, okay, I'm forgiven up to a point, but then you know what? I've just sinned too much for him to love me, so I better be good enough to kind of get back into his good graces so he can start forgiving me again. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, he is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does uttermost mean? It means every single time. It means to the very depth of your soul. It means every little bit, always he saves. Dane Ortland says of his forgiveness, he says, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down to the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He draws or he knows us to, to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot, out, um, we cannot sin our way out of his tender care. When Jesus intercedes for you, imagine it like Jesus is praying for you, that he never stops going to the Father for you. What this means for us is that you are never alone. You may feel it. It may be a rough season, rough year, rough situation you find yourself in. You are not alone and you are not forgotten. Jesus is interceding and advocating for you. It also means that he's not letting go. If you look at the back half of that Romans chapter 8 passage, it says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, because we have a God who intercedes for us. And it means that one day it's going to be okay, that this isn't the end. I was listening to Sandra McCracken, who's a, a Christian singer-songwriter this morning, and she said, if it's not okay, it's not the end. It means one day that this is going to end. We're going to be with him forever. See, this Jesus does all of this and he intercedes for us because one day we will know that when he returns, we can rejoice. So lastly, let's look at what Jesus will do in the future. What will Jesus do in the future. The last part of the Apostles' Creed that we're covering today says, he shall come to the judge to judge the living and the dead. In our culture, the term judge has a bad connotation. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. You may have heard people say that. 
It's a scary statement. Only God can judge us, but we don't like the idea of judging. Well, Jesus is a good judge. Verses 10 and 11, the disciples are staring into heaven, and, and all of a sudden the angels show up. And you notice that everybody before Jesus resurrected from the dead was terrified of angels. At, at, the, at the empty tomb, the women are standing there, and they're not terrified of angels. Here, the men, they see Jesus ascend into heaven. They're not terrified. And the angels tell them, they said, you know he's coming back, right? And he's going to come back the same way that he ascended. He is going to come back as king because he went away as king. And our good king is also a good judge. He's the one who's going to set everything right and make everything the way it should be. He's going to settle up all accounts and every injustice that has ever been done will be accounted for either by his death in our place or upon us as punishment. I think for some of us, when we hear about the legal, a legal system and the idea of justice, we don't see justice in our world. We look at our world and we look at, you know, we look at something like police brutality. And I think that's what shocked us so much about Derek Chauvin actually being convicted was we've seen the record of this not happening time and time and time again. But Jesus is a perfect and good judge who never gets it wrong. John chapter 3 says that as he comes, he will come as a light coming into the world. And it's the same light. Some run from the light, some run to the light. But the thing about the light is when the light exposes you, you will be found out. All unrighteousness will be exposed. But if you've trusted Jesus who intercedes for you, you can look forward to that day with joy. Now, again, the Bible doesn't make clear uh, about when this is going to happen. And we see this here in verse 6. Matthew 24 says that it's like a thief coming in the night. Jesus will, will come back. And look, lots have tried to figure this out. Jehovah's Witness tried to figure this out. There's a guy named Harold Camping back in 2011 uh, who tried to say he was coming back in 2011. The National Enquirer will say there's like a misshapen potato that predicts the return of Christ. Everybody's trying to figure this stuff out. But how do we not obsess about the return of Jesus, but also be ready for the return of Jesus? And if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Live like today is that day. Live like it's the last day. What would you do if you knew today was the day that you would meet Jesus? Who would you go tell the gospel? What would you go, what would you do differently? What would you need to get in order? Who would you need to reconcile with? But another way that we live and be ready for the return of Jesus is to consider how you will respond when you stand before him. Imagine an exclusive nightclub, and you've probably seen this scene on a TV show or a movie. It's an exclusive nightclub, and people go up to the door, and they meet the bouncer, and it doesn't matter how nice they're dressed. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter what they bring to the door. It doesn't matter what other clubs they've gotten into. Unless you know the bouncer, you can't get in. It's kind of the same way with heaven. Unless you know Jesus, you can't get in. He has to be your king. And the thing about that that's beautiful is it means anybody can get in on this. All it takes is getting to know Jesus. Think about the thief on the cross. That guy knew nothing but Jesus. He looked over and saw Jesus crucified and said, you know what? I want to be with you forever. That's all it takes. Just two final thoughts on what it means for Jesus to be your king. He has to be the king that you bow to, that you bow the knee to. And to not bow to Jesus is mutiny. It's treason. 
Philippians 2, 9 through 11 say, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It means that you will either bow to him in love or you will bow to him in unwilling recognition because we want to often be the king over our own worlds. My kids love Minecraft. I don't understand it. It looks, it looks like video games were set back 40 years. It's just these random polygon blocks. But the cool thing about Minecraft is you make your own world. You can create whatever you want it to be. It's like your little own micro kingdom. Is Jesus the king of your life or have you built your little own micro kingdom? And when you get anxious, is it because there's a threat to that, which is actually your real king? Who gets to be the judge in your life? Lastly, he's the king who sends you. We see this in verse eight, that we are called to be witnesses. And again, we'll get into the spirit next week, but we've been empowered by the spirit to tell others about this good king. And he makes this point here that the kingdom of God is going to extend through us. Jesus is leaving the scene and he says it will be better and the gospel will actually go further and faster than could possibly happen if I were here. I've often talked about the kind of this golden chain of the Great Commission. If you were to look at, if you've come to faith in Jesus, if you're not, we would love for today to be that day. But if you've come to faith in Jesus, it means that someone shared the gospel with you. You either heard a sermon, more likely a friend shared the gospel with you, and you can actually back that chain all the way up to this moment. You can back that chain all the way up to uh, the Great Commission. And I, I do believe one day in heaven, when we have perfect clarity, you're gonna be able to see that chain of people who are faithful to Jesus's command to share the gospel with maybe one person. And the question for us is this, as those who've been entrusted with the Great Commission, is will the Great Commission end with us? Or will we extend it beyond ourselves? Are you, are you submitting your life to Jesus as your King? We often think about coming to faith in Jesus. And for, for, for some of us, it's like, you know, I look forward to just having peace from God. I want, I want meaning. I want purpose in my life. But if it means giving up this, I can't do it. That's not what it means to submit to Jesus as king. It means giving him everything. But the Bible actually tells us that when we give our life away, that's when we find it. And this morning, if you've not given your life to Jesus, we would love to talk to you about what that looks like. But for each of us, let's submit our lives to Jesus as our King. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.